Would you bow your heads with me in prayer, please? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of opening your word this morning. I pray that all of our hearts and ears would be open to the moving of your spirit and that we would see Christ once again as our Savior from the pages of your word. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, I want to say one more time what an honor and a privilege it is for me to be here. I um, have known of your seminary for a long time uh, in the field of New Testament studies, of course. You guys have a wonderfully rich uh, heritage, and uh, you have a wonderful reputation uh, worldwide. So it's, it's a real pleasure to be here. I met Tim Foster a few uh, couple years ago, I guess, um, who, who came to, to my seminary, and we had a wonderful time getting acquainted, and uh, I'm looking forward to interacting with many of you this week and, and getting to know you better and, and uh, sharing life with you uh, for a couple of weeks. Well, if you would uh, keep that, that passage of scripture open uh, that was just read for us, thank you for that reading, that was, that was wonderful. Um, Psalm 88 is, is what I would like to open uh, for us briefly this morning as we move toward Holy Communion. This is, of course, uh, as has already been mentioned, a psalm of lament. And the psalms of lament are, in fact, uh, the largest group of psalms in the Psalter. There are more psalms of lament than any other type of psalms. And, in fact, there are so many of them that there are, there are subdivisions of them. There are psalms of individual lament. There are psalms of corporate lament. There are psalms of lament over sin. There are psalms of lament over the, the chaos of how the nations are besieging Israel. So this is a, a, a vast treasury of psalms. And in fact, this is one of the most intense. Um, it's one of the most visceral. I'm sure you, you, you picked up on that as it was read again for us this morning. It's, it, it's unrelenting in its intensity. And I just want to point out a few uh, features of it that we, that we ought not to miss uh, before I go on and, and draw some, uh, some comfort from this psalm for us this morning. First of all, uh, notice that the psalmist is confessing a kind of circumstantial intensity in his life. There, there's a, there, there, there are circumstances external to him. There are circumstances outside of him that are pressing in on him. Look, for example, at verse 8. He says to the Lord, you have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. So that's, that's a kind of external darkness that he's facing. His, his friends, his confidants, his companions have, have been cut off from him. And we don't know, of course, the circumstances. And perhaps it's better that we don't know the circumstances so that we each can identify with it in our own way, in our lives. So there's an external pressure that's coming at him. Look, again, look at verse 18 as well. He says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So this is a, a man who's facing uh, conflict and abandonment by those who are closest to him. Those whom he trusted, those whom he leaned on for support are no longer there in his life. But notice it's not simply external circumstances that are oppressing him. It's also internal, uh, the internal condition of his heart that's dark. Uh, look, for example, at verses 13 and 14. He says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? 
Why do you hide your face from me? So not only is this a man who's facing external darkness, he's also facing internal darkness. He's also facing the conflict of crying out to the Lord and feeling as though the Lord has shut his heart to him, shut his ears to him. And I don't know about you, but that's for me the worst darkness. I can deal with the, the external darkness if I have a kind of internal serenity and comfort, but this man has neither. He has both the external darkness and the internal darkness. And then finally, I just want to make one more observation before I, I turn and, and try to um, draw some application from this. Look at, look at how the psalm ends. This is, this is something unique in the Psalter. There are a couple of other psalms that end with, with wavering and doubt, but this is the most intense of them. This is the one that ends with no ray of light at all. Look at the final verse of the psalm. He says, you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. And then I'm reading from the ESV here, which I confess I like a little bit better than the, than the NIV because it follows the Hebrew in making the final word of the psalm darkness. Look at, look at uh, the verse. The ESV translates it, my companions have become darkness. And that's actually faithful to the original Hebrew because the final word in Hebrew of this psalm is darkness. There's no ray of light. There's no uh, chink in the armor. There's no um, uh, shaft of sunlight that's, that's creeping into this situation. It's all darkness. In fact, the final word of the psalm is darkness. So this is a, a particularly um, intense and, and constricting sort of psalm. And I wonder if we might find some hope in it uh, this morning. I want to I wanna draw out some hope under three headings. And uh, I grew up Baptist, so I can do this. Uh, three point, <laughs> a three-point sermon is a, is a good sermon in the Baptist world. So I want to I talk uh, very briefly as we move toward the table about the comfort of this psalm, the context of this psalm, and the Christ of this psalm. Uh, the comfort, the context, and the Christ. Here we go, the comfort. Walter Brueggemann, uh, the great Old Testament scholar, he says that this psalm, Psalm 88, is an embarrassment to conventional faith. It's an embarrassment to conventional faith. And what he means by that is that if you have a kind of faith where God is always going to deliver you from every external circumstance that you don't like and every internal circumstance that you don't like, if that's your conventional faith, this psalm is a thorn in your side because it doesn't promise that kind of faith. I think it promises something better. It promises us that we are not alone, you are not alone, if this is your experience in your life. Um, this psalm is here in the Psalter by divine providence, by divine intention, and it's intending to tell you that if this is your experience of a kind of ongoing darkness where you don't yet see any light in the darkness, you're not alone. I remember um, I, I spent a, a three years uh, as an intern at, um, at John Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist Church in, in Minnesota. And I remember um, uh, Pastor John used to preach uh, a series of biographical sermons. He would preach on the great uh, lives of Christians throughout history. He preached sermons on you know, Athanasius and, and Calvin and, and, uh, and others. But, but his most popular of these biographical sermons that he preached was a sermon on the life of William Cooper, uh, I don't know if any of you know 
uh, his hymns. Um, he, was a, he was a 19th century poet and hymn writer. He wrote, uh, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood. He wrote, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. You know, wonderful, great hymns of the church. But something you might not know about Cooper is that he died in utter despair as a Christian. He died believing that he was not among the elect. He died believing that he was, he was condemned and forsaken by God. And he wrestled with depression his whole life. And probably today he would, he would be diagnosed as, as severely clinically depressed or, or bipolar or something like this. And he, he had bouts of, of suicidal depression throughout his life. And uh, John Newton was his friend. John Newton was his pastor. Newton who wrote Amazing Grace, you know, the former slave trader whom God dramatically rescued. And Newton would go on long walks with Cooper and would try to talk him out of his despair. And uh, it was never effective. You know, he would, he, would, he would apply the comforts of the gospel to Cooper's life, and Cooper could never feel it. And he, he, in fact, died in despair. And so Pastor John preached a sermon on the life of William Cooper, and he said it was by far the most popular biographical sermon that he preached. The church got thousands of requests for the recording of this sermon. And he said, why is that? And he said, I think the reason is, is that all of us go through these times. Every last one of us go through these times, and we're craving to know that we're not alone. We, we're, we're desperate to know that this is not something that means we're a bad Christian. It's not something that means we have no faith, uh, that God is with us in the midst of this. And I think that's what Psalm 88 offers to us. It offers that kind of comfort. I was, um, I was telling my counselor recently that, uh, you know, here I am at 35 years old, and I feel like I'm... I'm circling back around the same sort of issues that I was dealing with 10 years ago or 15 years ago, and I was, I was feeling uh, depressed about this and despairing about this recently. And, and um, just, just after I told my counselor, I, I feel that this is one of those providential things, I, I came across uh, Charles Spurgeon, you know, the great, the great Baptist pastor in London. Spurgeon um, wrote a, a lot about depression. Uh, you, you may know his, his essay, The Minister's Fainting Fits. Uh, it'd be a good thing to read if you're a seminarian. The minister's fainting fits. Go, go away and Google that. I think you can find it online. But uh, listen to Spurgeon. This was a comfort to me uh, in my own wrestling. He says, we do not profess, we believers, do not profess that the religion of Christ will so thoroughly change a man as to take away from him all his natural tendencies. It will give the despairing something that will alleviate that despondency, but as long as it is caused by a low state of body or diseased mind, we do not profess that the religion of Christ will totally remove it. No, rather, we do see every day that amongst the best of God's servants, there are those who are always doubting always looking to the dark side of every providence, who look at the threatening more than the promise, who are ready to write bitter things against themselves. That's among the best of God's servants. So if that's you, if you feel that you can pray Psalm 88, you're not alone. That's the comfort of this. Secondly, uh, the context of this. This is a very obvious point, but I just want to underscore it. Where do we find this portion of Scripture? It's in the Psalter. What's the Psalter? The Psalter is the prayer book of the Bible. What is a prayer book? It's words that we are given with which to speak to God. 
That's what this psalm is. It's words, human words, that are given to us by God to speak to God. That's the context of this. This this is a psalm of utter despair, utter darkness, but it's darkness that's addressed to God. And that's crucial. The context of this despair is that this man, even in the very depths, even in the very darkness, is actually speaking to God. And that's a victory. He's not given up his faith. He's not given up his, his orientation to God, even though he thinks, he feels, that God has totally abandoned him. Listen to Walter Brueggemann. He says, The use of these psalms of darkness may be judged by the world to be acts of unfaith and failure. The world may look at us praying this psalm and say, you guys are just, you know, you're, you're lost. God's not with you. But for the trusting community, for us, the use of these psalms is an act of bold faith, albeit a transformed faith. It's an act of bold faith on the one hand because it insists that the world must be experienced as it really is and not in some pretended way. On the other hand, it is bold because it insists that all such experiences of disorder are a proper subject for discourse with God. There is nothing out of bounds, nothing precluded or inappropriate. Everything properly belongs in this conversation of the heart with God. To withhold parts of life from our conversation with God is in fact to withhold part of life from the sovereignty of God. Thus, these psalms make the important connection. Everything must be brought to speech, and everything brought to speech must be addressed to God, who is the final reference for all of life. You know, one of the, one of the barometers where I, I, I can tell that my prayer life is, is going off the rails is if I'm only speaking happy words or words of praise to God. I will notice this in myself sometimes, that I'm, I'm praying very sunny prayers, you know, Lord, thank you for this day, thank you for my, my friends, thank you for my job, when most of what I've been dealing with that day is worry and despair and darkness about something in my life. And if I'm not bringing that stuff to speech with God, then I'm actually not being honest to how my life actually is. And one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that it's, it's speech about despair, not to the psalmist. It's not the psalmist talking to himself. It's speech about despair that the psalmist is addressing to God, even though he feels like God has abandoned him. Finally, I want to I say something as we, as we move toward the table about the Christ of this psalm, the Christ of Psalm 88. One of, the, one of the core convictions of the Christian church throughout the ages has been that the ultimate prayer of the Psalms is not you, it's not me, it's not Israel, it's Christ. Christ is the one who prays the Psalms. You find this all through the Church Fathers, all through St. Augustine. Uh, you can find it in Bonhoeffer. Uh, it's all through the saints. The saints tell us over and over and over again that the first and primary prayer of the Psalms is Christ himself. And how does this Psalm read if we take that perspective? That these are Christ's words to the Father. Well, I think we're on good ground when we do that because we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christ, in fact, did pray the Psalms of Lament. 
And how do we know that? We know it primarily from Mark's gospel, don't we? On the cross, Jesus takes up on his lips the cry of Psalm 22, which is another psalm like Psalm 88, with deep darkness in it, deep despair in it. And Jesus, as he's hanging there on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, he's voicing this darkness that the psalmist feels. He's taking on his lips the words of Israel's lament, Israel's agony, and he's identifying himself in profound solidarity with that experience of human darkness. That's the meaning of the cross. Jesus doesn't hold himself aloof from our despair. He doesn't hold himself back from our darkness. He enters into the very depths of it, all the way into it. I love that image that C.S. Lewis gives us of the diver, the diver jumping into the pool and going down, 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 down to where there's no light left coming through the water. And Lewis says, that's the incarnation, that's the cross. That Jesus plunges himself, not only into our human nature, not only into our flesh, but into our most profound despair. And he goes where the light can't penetrate and he hangs there and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, how is that a comfort? Well, it's a comfort because from here on out, whenever you find yourself wanting to pray this psalm, whenever I want to pray this psalm, we are now praying it in solidarity with Jesus Christ. We're not alone in praying this psalm. We're praying it with our Savior who experienced the full weight of it, the full depths of it. And I think I'm on... I'm on firm biblical ground when I say that God expects us to go through that. In fact, he's made provision for it. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 17, we will suffer with him so that we might be glorified with him. Jesus enters into our suffering not to guarantee that we won't ever suffer again, but so that our suffering may now be conformed to his, so that our suffering may now participate in his in solidarity with him. So he has joined us in our suffering that our sufferings may now be united to his so that we may now pray Psalm 88 not simply on our own but with him and for his sake. George MacDonald said, The Son of God suffered unto death not that men might not suffer but that their sufferings might be like his. And that's the ultimate comfort of this, I think, friends, this morning, is that when you pray this, when you take this psalm on your lips, you're doing so in solidarity with Jesus Christ, who has already made himself one with you. And what we're now about to celebrate is our profound unity with him, our union with him through his death and resurrection, through his praying of that psalm of lament. We are now given back this psalm. And we know that whatever the psalmist feels, whatever you feel, Darkness is, in fact, not the final word because Easter follows Good Friday, resurrection follows death, light follows darkness, joy comes in the morning. Amen.